All right. Uh, if you've got a packet coming in, you're going to see the, kind of the usual suspects. We've got a, a worksheet on the front and then all the verses that we're going to be covering tonight uh, joined to that and the bibliography on the back. Um, you know, in particular, we, we've talked about a number of these um, that I think are helpful. Um, we've been going through more or less what is, uh, what, what typically it will be called, you'll hear it called Reformed theology, or you'll hear it called Reformed soteriology, which means just the doctrine of salvation, that's all it means. Um, those are $5 words. You might hear it sometimes referred to as Calvinism. Um, there's a book that I think is, is somewhat helpful in this um, on the back here in the bibliography. It's, uh, John Piper has a, written a book called Five Points, and I think it's very good. You'll notice a lot of, uh, there's some stuff that's taken from, from that resource tonight, um, but I, I think it's very helpful, and it's very accessible. It's very short, um, so it would be helpful to read, to just understand what's being said and what's not being said. Sometimes I think if, you know, I've always kind of said to people, if you're discipled by the internet, uh, you're going to be an angry person, because that's what the internet produces, is angry people. And so if you just kind of go just Googling, what do you think about this, and you just take every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry's opinion on whatever, you're going to end up being kind of an angry person. Um, I think instead it's worth, you know, hearing what's being said, what's being taught, and try to understand it. Um, and I think that book will, will go a long way in that. So I would recommend that one to you. Um, the, all of them are good, but that's a, a one that a lot of this comes from. So um, remember over the last few weeks, kind of if we just walk through ba basically the trail, the argument that's been being made from the very beginning, it's essentially uh, that we're born fallen. Uh, we are, before we ever do good or bad, we're already condemned because we are Adam's children. And so Adam was given the punishment of death in the garden, and as a result, everyone dies. So that tells you right there, we're all held to the death penalty um, before we even do a, a thing. Uh, so we're guilty in that sense, but then through that, we, we also sin. Um, and if you, if you can't understand that, or you can't wrap your head around that, a lot of things in Scripture are not really going to make sense. Um, and you're constantly going to feel like the death or the punishment or the eternity in hell that is talked about in Scripture so much is unfair. You're going to feel like that if you don't understand the nature of the rebellion that mankind engaged in at the very beginning and how we're guilty in Adam. And so if you don't understand that, that's going to be really hard to grasp. And then it's going to be even harder to understand the grace and mercy of God that actually comes to us and rescues us from hell when he didn't have to. And so we engage with the Lord every Sunday morning together as a church body or anytime we gather together and hear his word or anytime even in your living room, you open up your Bible and all of that is a blessing of His grace and mercy to you because it didn't have to be that way. And the essential premise that's going on here is that when we have, since we have fallen, our hearts have been so corrupted that it's rendered us blind. So we, we've equated it to our wills being in bondage to sin. And that's the way the, the Bible depicts it, is that you are in bondage to sin. You're, and bondage means that you're locked in. 
That is all you can do. That's all you are. And, and Paul goes into saying, without faith, it is impossible to please God, that you're in bondage to sin and death, that you're, uh, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And on and on it goes, we understand that, that this has rendered me incapable in and of myself of doing anything that would be ever pleasing to God in my natural state. So it's kind of like living in a prison where the prisoners kind of get out of their cell and they go play basketball in the yard and that gives them some sense that they are free. But in reality, you on the outside are going, that's not freedom. That's not freedom at all. That's bondage. You're in chains. You might get outdoor time to go play basketball, but that is in no way, no sense, real freedom. What we end up finding in the scriptures is that this prison that we're in, this bondage to sin, actually has no walls around it. That you're there because you want to be. Your desire is actually to sin. It, it meets with our, our desires. And so what was necessary was for God to actually rescue us, and He has to do that. So Jesus first has to pay the penalty for our sin, and then has to give us His righteousness. And... What God also has to supply us with is His Spirit so that we actually have a competing desire. We actually want to walk out of the prison and, and leave. We can't make the decision to do that. God has to actually give us the Spirit where we want to even do that because desire precedes choice. So we call that new birth, and, and our new birth is monergistic, meaning that God works alone. Um, man is... Uh, absolutely and totally passive in spiritual regeneration. God effectually calls the sinner. He overcomes the obstinacy and calls them to salvation by giving them of the Spirit so that they respond in faith. And so conversion takes place after new birth where a person now not only has the Spirit dwelling within them that God put there, but now they actually become conscious of the gospel and actually desire to repent, to profess faith, and to believe. We call this conversion. It's the point where a person comes to realize his need for Christ that uh, God actually created in him. Um, so, not only that, but then we talked last week about justification and sanctification. We're justified by God's gift of grace through faith. Um, God has actually gifted us, not only with the grace, but with the faith to believe. That is His gracious gift. And that is the tool, the instrument, that He works through to apply the death of Christ to your account. He works through that, that faith. And then subsequently after that, because of the Spirit that He put within us, we are progressively, over the course of our life, sanctified. Um, I've used this illustration before, but I don't think I used it last week. Your life as a Christian should look like a, a, a pretty good stock. <laughs> uh, and that means that over the course of a, a long period of time, it is gradually on the incline towards holiness and righteousness. But if you zoom in on any week or any month, maybe any year or maybe even any decade, you might see a long period of decline. But on the whole, if Christ's Spirit is dwelling within us, then what He is going to produce in us is a desire for righteousness 
that competes against our flesh and wants to put an end to sin. And we're not going to get there this side of Christ, this side of eternity, granted, but we should, over time, be trending upwards. And so, what that means is, for us, we avail ourselves of all the regular, common means of grace that God has given to us. And that is things like the preaching and teaching of the Word. That is, study on your couch with your Bible, opening up and just reading it. Prayer. Singing together as a corporate body. Singing by yourself. Um, the, the, yes, you can be as off-key as you want in your living room, right? You don't have to worry about, you know, the dog may put his paws over his ears. But, you know, it's okay. It doesn't matter. He'll get over it. Um, and, and so all of these things that God has given to us, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all of these things, these regular, common means of grace that God has given to us are His, are His ways of growing us and maturing us in Christ. And over time, that maturity has its effect. Now, it takes a long time, but it, it has its effect. So um, justification and sanctification is what we talked about last week. Now, now this week... What we want to talk about is perseverance. So, so God has given us of His Spirit. He has uh, he's promised to mature us. But there's also some assurances that we have. Now, this whole time, I, I've been basically saying uh, all these things you thought you were doing and that you were so like you know gung-ho about, I did that. We actually find out Scripture's telling us God did that. He's done that in you, right? It, it, it's God. Well, it will come as no surprise that perseverance is also something that God is going to do. But my hope is that when you hear what's being taught in the Scriptures about your perseverance, that it will encourage you. Because here's the reality. If my perseverance is left in my hands, I don't like that idea. Do you? Well, certainly you wouldn't like it if it was left in my hands. I, I understand that, and I'm not at all offended by it, okay? But if your perseverance was only left in your hands, would you feel really confident that you were going to see glory? I, I wouldn't. There, there is a, a doctrine that's frequently taught, and we'll talk about it a little bit tonight, that, that you can lose your salvation. That is, a, lot of, a lot of denominations out there actually do teach that, that you can lose your salvation. You understand that it's the height of arrogance to think that you could lose your salvation, but you haven't yet? You understand that? Right? <laughs> because the reality is, is if my perseverance is left in my hands, I would have lost it four times. I'd have been like a kid that you give the dollar to, and it's like, where, where, where'd you do with it? Oh, I'd put it around here somewhere. You know, like, that would be my salvation. It would just be left somewhere. I don't know, I don't know where it would be. So, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is that they whom God has regenerated and effectually called to a state of grace, all the things we've already talked about, can neither totally nor finally fall away from that state, but will continue in God's sanctifying grace to the end and be eternally saved. So if we're going to define the perseverance of the saints, this would be it. It is that the ones that God has regenerated, 
given the gift of the Spirit, overcome their obstinacy, brought them to a place of conversion, brought them to profession of faith and and repentance of sin, those whom God has done that for will never totally or finally fall away from a state of grace, but they'll continue being sanctified until glory or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. All right? So they will continue to grow that way. Now, it won't surprise you to to hear that it's not man, but God who perseveres. Perseverance is the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. So, What we're saying then is that it isn't finally on your shoulders. It isn't finally in your hands. It is God who is working your perseverance. This is precisely the reason that He can promise to you that you will make it. This is the only reason He can promise that you will make it. Because if God stepped back and said, well, it's up to you then there's no way He could promise you anything. There couldn't be a blanket promise in Scripture. Now, He might be able to, I'll grant you this, look down the corridors of the future and come to you personally and say, Miss Lynn, I know you're going to make it. But there's no way He could write in the pages of Scripture to every Christian who would ever read it, you're going to make it. There's no way He could possibly do that. If, in fact, he left it to your own devices. So look at, let's look at what Scripture has to say about this. John 27, John 10, excuse me. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see what he's saying there? The Father first gives them to Jesus. Here, is, here are the sheep. He gives them to Jesus. Jesus calls with the gospel, the sheep, here, I know that voice, and they come running. And no one is able to snatch them from either God or Christ. They're going to, he's going to keep them secure. Look at Romans 8, 29 to 30. This one, if you really think about it, it's going to rock your world, I think. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What is He... What, you understand what He just said there? He put glorified, which we haven't even gotten to yet. He put glorified in the past tense. You think He accidentally did that? You think Paul is autocorrect? Just... Everything's been in past tense, so it auto-corrected back to glorified? No! Paul wrote that as past tense because it is as good as done. Everything that he's talking about God doing in this passage is something that he initiated, that he started, that he set in motion, 
and that he's bringing to completion. And if it's in his hands, it's not going to fall apart. It's going to successfully be completed. This is the reason, if you continue reading in Romans 8, um, that Paul then makes the argument, who then can separate us from the love of God? If he gave his son, if, if he didn't even spare his son, but graciously gave him up, won't he then also graciously give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor famine, nor sword, nor nakedness. There's a guarantee that God is going to do this. Why? Because God is the one doing it. None of it does Paul put in his own hands of actually making it. Um, Romans eleven twenty nine. <laughs> okay, let's read this one. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What? Irrevocable. That means they can't be revoked. They can't be taken away. If he's given them, not only will he not take away, you can't get him to take those away. They're irrevocable. Um, Philippians 1.6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.12, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His kingdom, His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's no way Paul could possibly ever promise that unless our perseverance rested in the hands of God ultimately. That's what he's saying. That's the reason he can be confident in it. However, you knew there was a however coming. Just a fancy word for but. But, perseverance means to say that true saints will and must persevere in faith and the obedience which comes from faith. So, the Bible is going to put this in two ways. They don't conflict each other. They don't contradict each other. They complement one another. God is finally the one who perseveres us, who gets us to the end. He is the one that carries us, that sustains us, that guards us, that protects us, that makes sure that we are glorified in the end. He is the one who chiefly does that. However, we have to ask, well, what does it look like when a person perseveres? What is, if I'm just standing on the outside and I'm watching Richard go through this life, what does it look like when he perseveres? And the Bible is going to tell you it looks like persevering in faith and obedience to Christ. You understand? So that makes it really easy for us, not necessarily easy, but it makes it better for us when we're looking at the life of someone to say they are in Christ or out of Christ because we can perceive the fruit, right? 
not saying we're, we're like being overly scrupulous or anything like that, but we're, we're looking at someone's life and we're saying a life that is persevering in Christ is characterized by faith and obedience. Okay, so this is what the Bible will say about that. You'll see these challenges to you. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is he saying there? That the person that he's preaching to, that has said they believe, they've got to keep believing. They've got to continue in faith. They've got to continue in obedience. Look at Matthew 13, 20 to 22. As for what was sown on rocky ground, you're familiar with this parable, I think. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but, ca- but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and proves it unfruitful. Now this is in the, in the context of Jesus preaching the parable of the sower of the seeds. And there's a lot of uh, people that will engage in debate on this parable, and they'll say, you know, how many of these people were Christians? (sighs) The parable is about as straightforward as it can get. There's one that is sown on fruitful soil, and it grows, and it produces 20, 30, and 100-fold. The rest of them all fall away. When we talk about being saved, we've talked about, I have been saved. That is a past tense thing God did. I am being saved. That is something God is currently doing. He justifies me by faith. He continues to increase my sanctification. I am being saved every day. And Paul even uses that phrase there, you're being saved. Even now, he's working sanctification. But there is another concept of salvation that we're just now getting to, which is I will be saved. You understand salvation means absolutely nothing if when you die, you go to hell. Right? And what is salvation? Well, we know we have conviction of sin, and we repent, and we call that salvation. But you understand, that's just, that's the hem of the garment. That is a foretaste. That's what we call that. That's the amuse-bouche in the food world. Ah, you know the amuse-bouche? That's the, the appetite increaser. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun word to say, the amuse-bouche. It's, it's the little thing that they bring along, it's, it's tiny, and you put it in there, and it's meant to go, oh, I forgot, I am hungry, right? Yeah, I, I'm hungry. So then they bring the appetizer along, right? Your confession of faith now, even those little moments of everyday sanctification, that's like the amuse-bouche to your salvation. It's not the final meal. The final meal comes when Christ returns or when we die and, and go to glory and the resurrection of the dead or whichever comes first, all right? That, that is the appetite. That, that's, the, the real, that's the main meal right there. And so what we experience now is simply the amuse-bouche. It's the, little, it's the beginnings, the brimmings of salvation. That means absolutely nothing if the main course never comes. What good is it if the waiter only ever brings you that little tiny morsel of food? You want the real course. My wife and I went to an anniversary dinner one time, and 
we were told this restaurant was like, it was really nice, it was really awesome, it was in Dallas, it's called the French Room in Dallas, and it even sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like all fancy, and it w- very much was, and I sat down, and we had our menu, and it was like, I don't know, 19 courses or something, I don't know, way more than I could possibly ever want, and a lot of things on there that I was like, I won't eat that, <laughs> you know, I don't even know what that is and can't pronounce it, so I ordered, you know, what every red-blooded American male will order, that's right, that's right, steak, yeah, Give me it. Bring it on. I should have asked how big it was. They brought out something that was the size of a quarter. I mean, it was like that thick, and it was about the size of a quarter, and they were two sitting next to each other on this plate that was like that big. Had this... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, where's the rest of it? Did I say I didn't want any more bread? Bring more bread. <laughs> I need all the bread you can possibly bring. Don't spare the butter. <laughs> what good is it if that's, our, if that's the salvation that we've got? That's not what we want. That's not what we're anticipating. Our salvation is the, is the foretaste of what is to come. That is final salvation. If perseverance doesn't actually take me to the end then it means absolutely nothing. So you have these seeds that fall in the ground, and they end up being choked out and fall away. They produce no fruit. They give no signs that there's any health. In fact, they're dead. What does that sound like? Does that sound like someone who has experienced final salvation? Or does the full-grown crop that's producing fruit 20, 30, and 100 fold? Well, of course, it's that one. It's Jesus' point. There's all kinds of people that will receive the gospel in different ways and initially look very excited about it, but they have no perseverance. And what the Bible is telling you is that the kind of faith that is genuine conversion, the kind of faith that is real saving faith, is the kind of faith that perseveres. God doesn't give half measures, in other words. He gives the full measure of His Spirit. And it will cause you to, he will cause you to persevere. You will make it to the end. So it's, there's only one kind of faith that actually does save, and it's the kind of faith that is exercised in obedience. So persevering faith, in, uh, uh, so persevering in faith, rather, does not mean that the saints do not go through seasons of doubt and spiritual darkness and measures of unbelief in the promises and the goodness of God. Measures of unbelief can coexist with true faith. However, true faith will never become so callous to Christ that repentance becomes impossible. Will never become so callous to Christ that repentance becomes impossible. Um, hear this from Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 15, 17... And it is, here it is, it's on the second page of verses, page four in the middle, or towards the bottom, maybe bottom third. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's what he's talking about, right? That you persevere in faith. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So don't be, in other words, like Esau. He's encouraging people who have expressed a desire to follow Christ in a church, but now are tempted to run away. And, and maybe it's Paul that's writing this, or somebody near Paul is writing this, and, and they're telling the church, do not, don't go after sexual, sexual immorality, don't pursue any of those kinds of things, because it, it causes you to reject Christ. They cause you to have an affinity for this world. Now, we understand doctrinally, God secures His people, but it's still on us as preachers, as ministers of the Word, to admonish people and to encourage them to stay away from wickedness of all types and sin of all types because it attracts, it draws in, and potentially brings you to the point where no repentance could even be found by you because you don't ultimately want it at all. So there is a human element in here where we understand that doctrinally, God secures His people. We understand that. At the same time, we don't know who His people ultimately are. Many people can fake it for many of years. And so it's on us as preachers, as ministers of the gospel, as people of His church body, to encourage people and admonish people away from wickedness and sinfulness because it attracts and it defies. All right. In other words, the New Testament is at pains to make sure we do not despair thinking that backsliding and waywardness in sin is a one-way street. In other words, it is possible to repent. So you as people will go through seasons of decline, and those seasons may be prolonged, they may be for long periods of time, where you sense no growth whatsoever. In fact, you just sense a decline. In which case, that is the reason His grace and mercy given to you is in the church. Because the people in the church are supposed to come alongside you, and they're supposed to say, hey, you're backsliding. We went through a whole session for 13 weeks before this called Church Defined. And in that series, we talked about church membership and church discipline and what it is. And you understand that church membership and church discipline is going very closely along with perseverance of the saints. That the design of church membership and church discipline is to help you persevere in faith. You're supposed to be around brothers and sisters that actually care about your salvation. Whereas the person, you go to a church that's, let's say, massive, and you can be a wallflower, and nobody sees you. You can be on the wherever, and you just... Nobody sees you, nobody knows you. Very easy to sit next to somebody, not know their name, not really care from where they came, because you're all there for the one central thing. But that's not church membership. Church membership is actually where you, on the pew, look at the person next to you and actually care about their salvation. If I were to ask you, what is a pastor's job? I'm not even going to ask that question, all right? But if I were to ask that question, let's say, hypothetically, I were to ask that. Don't, don't volunteer the information, Millie, all right? <laughs> no, no. If I were to ask you, there would be a whole host of things, all related to probably, I'm guessing, ministry. 
I was a minister of the gospel. What if I told you his job is to train and equip the ministers? Paul lays out in Ephesians the role of a pastor is to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's not the way we think of it. We think of it as the pastor is the chief minister. That's not the way the New Testament lays it out. The pastor is the one who takes the word and trains and equips you for the work of ministry. The word actually does that work. Paul's clear on that. He says that in Timothy, right? He tells him, this is the word. It's God-breathed. It's able to train, equip, correct, reprove. So the pastor's job then is to take the word of God, to teach it as much as he possibly can and be faithful to the text, And what it does is it trains and equips you. Why? So you can just sit on it and you can know more? No. But so that you can care about the salvation of the person sitting next to you and you can begin doing ministry to them by discipling them. So you might say that the pastor is discipling the church en masse all at one time with the Word of God. And the church then individually takes that training and applies it to their friend sitting next to them in the pew by discipling them and encouraging them and, yes, correcting their backsliding. There is a falling away of some believers, but if it persists, it shows that their faith was not genuine and they were not born of God. We see this in First John, several places, but First John 2.19. Um, they went out from us, but they were not of us. This is at the bottom of page 4. They went out from us, and they were not, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they, they all are not of us. Um, so they fooled John, right, at first. Uh, Luke 8, 9-14. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. That'll trip you up. That'll twist your noodle in knots if you're not careful. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, the one who comes along the path, are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away uh, the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, that tells you where they are. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, these are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches of the pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. So these people are are understood as falling away, but what is really going on, Jesus is saying, and John is saying, is that the reason they fell is because the faith that they had was fraudulent. Because we see that it didn't persevere. And listen, fraudulent faith can look very convincing. A college roommate, dear friend of mine, I loved him to death. We had conversations long into the night, knew him very well. 
And he let, when we graduated college, he left, went to a seminary that was very liberal. I, I don't even know that you could call it a seminary. Went and got a PhD in um, Catholicism and, and Buddhism and um, teaches Christianity and Buddhism at a, at a secular boarding school, basically. Um, is not in any historical sense a Christian at all. Would call himself that, but is in no way a Christian. But I would have sworn to you that he was a brother in Christ. But faith that's genuine perseveres. That's how you know it's genuine. It perseveres. Um, the fact that such a thing is possible is precisely why the mystery of the gospel in the local church must contain many admonitions to those church members to persevere in faith and not be entangled in those things which could possibly strangle them and result in their condemnation. So it's a warning to stay away, stay clear from sin. And the ones that do, or the ones that repent, or the ones that continue to fight sin over the course of their lives are the ones that persevere. Because that's what God has, has given to them. All of that being said, what we know is ultimately true and what we have to rest on, that's how these two things in Scripture can complement each other, is that the underlying doctrine remains true. God works to cause His elect to persevere. He's adamant about that over and over and over in Scripture. He's, he causes His elect to persevere. We're not left to our, ourselves in the fight of faith, and our assurance is rooted in the sovereign love of God to perform what He has called us to do. Um, li listen, just listen to what He tells us in Jeremiah 32, 40. This is the promise of the new covenant, which is secured in Christ's blood. Listen to what he says. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You hear what he's saying there? He's going to put this in there, and it's, it's not coming out. They're not going to turn. Uh, look at 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24-25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the, his present, uh, for the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So you see, there, we have to keep both of these doctrines together. They complement one another. The, the underlying doctrine is God will ensure that His people make it to the end. That is abundantly clear in Scripture. No question about that. But as we live in time and space, we do have responsibilities. We have real things that we engage in. And it's right for us to say, listen, Christian, stay away from sin. It entangles and ensnares, and it might prove that your faith is fraudulent. So it's best you stay away from it completely. 
And the ones that he is working in to persevere will ultimately hear the word, they will repent, and they will do that. And the course of their life, sanctification, will be on an upward trend, not a downward trend. Um, Therefore, we should altogether be zealous to confirm our calling and election. We as a church body. Because perseverance is a community project. Perseverance is a community project. I've said a number of times in here that our goal is to make it to the end. By that, I don't mean sitting on a recliner and hanging it up and retiring early and going, all right, now I'm just going to hunker down, me and Jesus, and we're going to make it to the end. I mean, as we struggle in our sanctification... Our goal is to, I wanna, I'm going to make it across the finish line. I might be limping, I might be army crawling across the finish line, but I want to make it. And in order to do that, brothers and sisters are going to have to be around me on both sides, in front and behind. I'm going to have to see some people upright and running so that I know what running looks like. I'm going to have to have some people down in the dirt with me dragging our half-dead carcass across the finish line, but, and I'm going to have to have some people trying to help me up. I'm going to have to have all of it. And we all are, because perseverance is a community project. It's something the church does together. We persevere as a group. So, uh, in more recent... Well, let's, let's tackle some interesting stuff. <laughs> uh, in, in more recent decades, many Arminian-leaning Baptists have moved away from uh, traditional Ar- Arminian doctrine of apostasy, um, meaning that one could lose salvation. And you may have heard the phrase used a time or two, once saved, always saved. You heard this? Yeah. This is, um, so he- here's what that is. That is an Arminian-leaning Baptist, really wanting to preserve this whole free will thing over here, really wanting to preserve that, but also seeing that this doctrine of perseverance is there in Scripture and that God is going to cause us to endure, right? And so they say, instead of perseverance of the saints, they say, once saved, always saved. But I want to help you understand that this is a... a a uh, unhelpful, watered-down twist of perseverance of the saints that actually doesn't mean at all what you really want it to mean. All right? Here, here's a couple reasons why. It, it, first, it fails to explain that true believers must continue in faith and obedience that comes from faith in order to be saved in the end. Because we can't forget, yes, God's Word promises us He will endure us. He will persevere us. He will take us to the finish line. But the Bible is also very clear. The ones that are taken to the finish line don't don't cross the finish line because God brings the finish line past them. He doesn't move the goalposts, understand. The ones that cross the finish line actually cross it, meaning that they continue in faith and obedience. Well, when we say once saved, always saved, what we actually articulate is you've made a profession of faith, 
you've come down front, you've been baptized, you've done whatever you've done that we require here at the church. We dunked you in water. Once saved, always saved. That person walks out the door, never darkens the door of a church again, lives like you know what from Monday through Sunday, and never thinks twice about it, but they've received that token that says once saved, always saved. And it causes us great consternation because when we talk about that person, we go, there's something not right here. I haven't seen one ounce of faith ever since that supposed conversion. And we baptized him, and I just haven't seen one shred of faith since then at all. And yet... Once saved, always saved. That is not what the Bible defined as salvation. In fact, if you were to draw a picture of what Jesus is talking about with the sower of the seeds, the seed that fell on rocky soil, or the seed that fell on thorny soil, or the seed that fell on the path, the word is snatched away from the heart of the person who fell on the path, here is a person I've seen have initial joy and then walked out the door and it died almost as soon as it hit the outside door. That sounds a lot like the one that fell on the rocky path. Had no depth at all and just withered and died on the vine. That's not salvation. So it fails to articulate what we actually believe about perseverance. No! You've got to persevere in faith. You've got to persevere in obedience. That's what real saving faith is. What you had, I don't know what that was, but it's fraudulent. I don't know if what you felt was actually true, or you actually had like a quiver in the liver, so to speak, but it didn't last. Just bad tacos. Or whatever. The second thing that that phrase, once saved, always save gives the impression of, is it grants the sinner freedom to choose before coming to Christ, right? So we, we say, here it is, yours to choose. You, you, you choose this way, you choose that way, it's, it's up to you. You have complete freedom, all right? One way or the other, you choose. So then they choose, right? And then it says, once saved, always saved, meaning once you've chosen, you can't unchoose. So it, puts it, it paints it as this weird situation where I have freedom before I come to Christ to choose one way or the other. Once I come to Christ, I lose my freedom to choose. I can't actually unchoose. Now I'm locked in, baby. I'm secure. I couldn't, if I wanted to, say I'm done and I'm walking out. See, Arminians, true Arminians, believe you can lose your salvation. Calvinists do not. Some modern Baptists have a foot in both camps and want to kind of keep it that way. It doesn't work. You can't really have it both ways. So what that means is it makes the sinner free to choose one way or the other, and the Christian bound. You're locked in. That is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says about your life. The Bible says you are bound before Christ. You are a prisoner. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are locked in. But 
in Christ, you are free. It's exactly the opposite. Look at Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 4, 6-9. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back once again to, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And don't forget the most glorious passage of all here, Ephesians 2.1-10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Can't get any more enslaved than that in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with, uh, us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Enslaved before, free after. The precise opposite. So what we say is, God's children persevere. They persevere in faith and obedience. Not by their own doing, not by the work of their own hand, but first, by God who made them alive in Christ Jesus, and second, by the grace of God that He has prepared the works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So we strive toward obedience, we strive towards faith, we come to repentance, we confess sin, we trust that Christ's sacrifice paid for our sin and gives us forgiveness. So you are lost in sin, struggling in sin, then the command is repent. Repentance is there for you, and you feel like it's far out there. You feel like it's a far reach that God could never possibly forgive me because it's wet. you have no idea how far I've run. No, no, no. Very simple. God, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Repentance is right there in front of you. You can't run so far that it wouldn't be right there in front of you. It's always right there. So repent. And what do I do then? Well, you trust that that confession, 
as meager as it was, is enough. He's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Well, and then what do I do? Invest in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you. Invest in the word of God that's written to you. Listen to it. Hear it read. Hear it preached. Hear it taught. Sing it. Pray it. Read it. Hear it. Listen to it. Put it on the podcast in the car. Don't listen to the sports talk radio. Instead, put on something that's edifying and actually good and continue, continue, continue to have it just drilled in your head over and over and watch over time your appetite for it increase and your desire to persevere increase. Question. You have people in home group that aren't next to you? <laughs> of course. But, but look, that's why, we do, that's why we do small groups in the homes. I, I'm just going to tell you, it, call it a plug or whatever you want to call it. There, there is something added to you to meet with other brothers and sisters that aren't me, but that are just other brothers and sisters that tell you what's going on in their life and that express concern and struggle and hardship. And, and you, maybe, maybe there's a moment of clarity where it just sort of like the clouds open up and this person who has been normally reserved and you look at and you think, man, that guy, that girl, that she's following Jesus and, and man, I wish I was like her. I'm not, I'm struggling. And all of a sudden she tells you, what's actually going on in here and you think I'm not so bad as I thought maybe <laughs> but but you also think you also think oh this is what a normal christian experience is like we were talking about that in small group this past week in, at our house just the things that we did in the past and we look at now and we we're like humiliated by Things like 20 years ago we did. I was in high school. Yes, I was in high school. 20 years ago. That I look at now and I'm like, oh my goodness. I am so, and I would give anything to just go back and correct that. As long as I didn't have to stay there. As long as I could come back. But go, do, give anything to just correct that. I, I can't. But we were talking about how it's, what an amazing thing it is that, in, that 20 years later, sin in my past is humiliating. At the time, it wasn't humiliating. And then when I actually, you know, was confronted with it, it, it became a little bit humiliating, but I thought, ah, oh, well, that's how it goes. Now, 20 years later, I'm mortified by it. And we can only hope that at 70, we look back at the things we did at 38. Or at 90, we look back at the things we did at 70. Or at 120, we look back at the things that we did at, uh, at 95 and are humiliated by those. Timothy.
Good idea. Um, so, encouragement. Uh, persevere in faith. Join with brothers and sisters. It's small groups, church membership. We talked about it all tonight, all right? But your doctrine of salvation ties very closely to your understanding of what the church actually is. Get that? They're, they're linked together. We, we can't have any more of this identity where church is over here and it's like this casual association of people and then my salvation is between me and Jesus, and nowhere is that in the Scriptures. It is always a community of people. The understanding of the church, the understanding of salvation are tied together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, and what a treasure trove it really is when we go through it, and we're so grateful for everyone on this bibliography that has just, has, is so good at being able to articulate some of these things and these concepts. And, um, and so we're, we're grateful for that. And, and I, I understand um, all too well that there are you know, differences of opinion on the way things shape out in Scripture and the reading of this verse or that verse. And, and more than anything, I pray that whether it be differences of opinion or whatever, that those would be put aside and at least we would all agree that our desire above everything else is to grow into the image of Christ and we understand that you are working that in us. It is not of our own doing that it is your gift to us and it is by your grace and your mercy that you have called us what you have called us. And we, we don't understand that and it is too much for us, but, but we understand that that's what has happened. And all we can be is grateful and come and worship and hear. Um, so we, th- we are grateful for the grace and mercy that you've given to us in Christ. We pray that we will always be reminded of that in Jesus' name. Amen.